Hello, and welcome to the Francis Farmer Show. It has been uh, almost a week now since uh, uh, the 2017 Seattle International Film Festival has ended, although given how long SIF was, it surprisingly seems like a really long time since it actually ended. I don't know. It's been like four days. It goes on forever in our hearts. Yeah. So, uh, so I am... Uh, Joined again, we're going to do our, our SIF wrap-up episode. If you missed our mid-festival report one, you should uh, go listen to that, but you don't have to. You can listen to them out of order if, if you want. Uh, I'm uh, My name is Sean Gilman. I'm joined by Evan Morgan. Hello. And Ryan Swen. Hello. And we lost uh, we lost Melissa. She uh, SIF was so long, sometimes you, you lose uh, critics along the way. They just get get washed overboard. Uh, sorry, Melissa. Uh, so we're basically just going to do what we did last time, which is talk about a bunch of the movies that we saw at SIF. But before we do that, I just wonder if you guys have any kind of uh, SIF in general thoughts that you want to share now that the festival is over. And this is uh, this was, for both of you, your first time uh, covering the festival as as press. So, what did you think, Evan? Uh, well, covering it as press, uh, I kept writing, starting to write reviews or writing whole reviews for things that I later found out were uh, meant to be held for review. So that was a new experience. So, uh, but I guess I have those saved in my back pocket now. So that was kind of strange. Uh, but otherwise, I would say it pretty much was like a normal SIF experience for me, where I made a calendar of 25 things to see, and I mostly sat on my couch. But uh, yeah, so pretty standard SIF, I'd say. What about you, Ryan? Well, I'm still getting used to SIF, but I had a fairly similar experience. Though it wasn't necessarily a case of sitting around on my couch as much as it was either missing my bus by a few minutes and just deciding not to go <laughs> to the screening or uh, just having other things to do. But I, so, so I had a similar experience. I, uh, I did a lot of uh, driving 45 minutes to Queen Anne and then spending a half an hour looking for a parking space <laughs> only to see one movie and then go home. Uh, <laughs> I did that like five days in a row, and uh, that was exhausting. That's heroic. Yeah, and it wasn't really worth it. I don't, <laughs> I don't know that I saw anything that really justified that investment in, in time and, and gas money. But uh, yeah, I, I, I do wish that the SIF experience was more like the VIF experience, where you could just go and watch four or five movies in one day. Yeah, and there's a weird way in which, because you have to go out so many days in a row for one film, like, I can kind of write off, like, if I'm doing four a day, like, even, you know, one or two films that I find kind of meh, but I'm already committed to it. I'm sort of in the mood. It's kind of hard to to get in the mood to do what you did five days in a row, and you have a lot further distance to go than I do, so. Yeah, don't you live, like, a mile away? (laughs) (laughs) It's like a 10-minute bus ride. <laughs> Sometimes the buses are late. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry sorry about that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's a weirdly distended uh, festival, as I'm, I'm sure anyone who's listening has already picked up on. But. 
Yeah, it's... I don't know. I don't think they actually play any more movies than Vancouver does. I think they, they play more shorts, and they, mm-hmm. they stretch them out over a much longer period of time in, like, fewer venues. So, but just in, like, a volume of actual features, I don't think there's much difference between it and, and Vancouver. It's, yeah, I think you're right. I mean... Oh, go ahead. Well, it's just, it's just a, like, an incredibly inefficient film festival. Yeah, though I think that's by design, because one thing that, I don't know, maybe you talked about it on prior ep- episodes that you recorded about SIF, but it has a strange model where so many of the people who go to SIF, at least, you know, certainly growing up here and, and being somewhat, you know, uh, in com- a community of people that are interested in the arts more generally, like I know a lot of people who just go see one or two things at SIF and sort of that's their SIF experience and it's like, oh, I got to go to the film festival and, and see one movie every year and there's i think by having it spread out over such a long period of time it sort of encourages people to go have that experience but doesn't really uh engender the the more committed festival experience so there are certainly people that have the passes and and trek out and stuff but yeah that was was slightly uh, that was slightly my experience uh, last year because i i didn't have a pass or anything and so i only went to like five or six things and and part of it was because I just didn't know what to see, really. Like, there were a few, like, Sunset Song or Dragon Inn that I knew I wanted to see. But other than that, I was mostly uh, without guide, essentially. Yeah, that, that was the the biggest surprise for me when I started going to SIF. Because I I lived in in Seattle, in the Seattle area, for, like, 15 years before I ever went to SIF. Uh, working in movie theaters all the time, and I so I, and, you know I just never was going to pay to go see a movie at the film festival. So when I actually started going, when we started covering it for for first the podcast and then the the site, uh, I was surprised at how crowded everything was because these these same movies or these same kinds of movies like uh, archival stuff or just kind of obscure foreign films, when we would play them at landmark theaters, like nobody would come to see them. Mm-hmm. But then you go to SIF, and like uh, I remember, I had this realization watching the uh, uh, the Color of Pomegranates, the the Sergei mm-hmm. uh, Parajnov film, which played at the the big theater in the Harvard exit, and and sold it out. It was it was just packed. And if we had played that movie at the Metro just like <laughs> six months before, we would have been lucky to get like ten people. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. just I I don't understand what all those people do during the rest of the year like this is like the one time they allow themselves to yeah. see mm-hmm. uh movies that aren't that don't have like superheroes in them and yeah i think that's what it is i mean yeah it's it's freaky it's it's a it's a, a incredibly unhealthy film culture for a city <laughs> though it is yep. worth noting that uh that northwest film forum which ran both uh, Stalker, the new restoration of Stalker, and Solaris during the festival for some reason, uh, that when they showed Solaris, which uh, I think that it was a new restoration, but I'm not entirely sure. That only got like four or five people. But then when, so that was the screening I went to for, for Solaris. But when I went to a screening of Stalker, it was virtually packed. So a lot of it is about, is about advertising yeah. in a certain sense. Yeah, that's weird. 
because I mean they only had like two shows of of Solaris too, mm-hmm. a week apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the film farm's been doing like some weird stuff with when they're scheduling shows. It's very difficult to to track. Yeah, they're like opening, they're running things like Thursday through Sunday, and then they'll play stuff on like a Thursday night and a Sunday, and not in between. Mm-hmm. And it's just weird. Like they're yeah. they're doing. Uh, this Aleppo movie, I think they played on Thursday, today, Thursday, and then they're playing it next Wednesday and Thursday. But not yeah, but I just saw last night that uh, Toshio Matsumoto uh, shorts yeah. program, which is the same deal. It's like Wednesday at 8, Thursday at 7, Sunday at 4 in the afternoon or something yeah. like that. Yeah, I so. don't... Yeah. But they've got, like, other stuff that they do. They have, like... They host a lot of other things that are going on that kind of mess with their schedule, so... Yeah, I don't really know. But yeah, I guess just to return to SIF, the the, the sort of uh, the culture around SIF and the people who go, I think there's the thing that I get frustrated about with SIF more than anything else. I mean, there's plenty of things I can complain about and have, but because they have this unique place in Seattle film culture where they really do bring people from sort of outside the normal movie culture to see one, you know, subtitled film a year, as you suggested, Sean. Like, I feel like they have a, they kind of need to step up to the plate a little bit more in terms of guiding those people to films that are really likely to spark a continued interest. I feel like the just smorgasbord options of SIF result in people who, as Ryan kind of said, don't really have a guide maybe and and just sort of randomly pick one or two things. Mm -hmm. And if you go that route, you're rolling the dice big time with a festival that's this huge with, you know, particularly at this time of the year. I think it, it doesn't, I think a lot of people go see something and don't really understand how to respond to it, don't have it in any kind of context, and it might not even be that good. And so then they just wait until the next festival rolls around because it's a thing to do instead of building an audience that's going to keep coming back. Yeah, and I, I suspect that that they would they would counter that the reason why they have such big crowds is because they program them the way they do. That if they had a more kind of cinephilic film festival like like Vancouver or even like San Francisco, then those people would lose interest and not come and see their movies. I don't necessarily buy that argument, but it's difficult to prove mm-hmm. them wrong when they've had so much financial success and what motivates SIF beyond anything else is uh, finances, despite the fact that they are ostensibly a nonprofit organization. But that is uh, that is arts in Seattle for you, <laughs> <laughs> which is a really long topic that I could rant about for quite a long time, <laughs> and probably should not. <laughs> So let's uh, let's uh, talk about the movies. And uh, before we do that, we should talk. We should. I'm going to list off the ones that we talked about on the last episode. So we won't talk about these anymore unless you have like some new insight to them that you want to bring up. So the stuff we talked before, about before are uh, yourself and yours, person to person, Sammy Blood, Searchers, Dawson City, Frozen Time, Knife in the Clear Water, Beach Rats. Uh, Morris, Vampire Cleanup Department, Cook Up a Storm, God of War, By the Time It Gets Dark, The Unknown Girl, Finding Kukan, and Bad Black. All right. So That's well, pretty good. Yeah, so other than those, what what did you see <laughs> at SIF? And go ahead and, and start us off, Evan, with uh, okay. something. Um, well, I saw uh, 
one of the archival program films. I don't know that we, well, I think we mentioned a little bit about the archival uh, films when we talked last time, but uh, I saw The Dumb Girl of Portici, which is a Lois, Dure uh, Lois Weber directed silent film uh, from the mid-teens, uh, which is not exactly a masterpiece or anything that's, that's awaiting to be rediscovered, but I had a lot of fun with it. It was, I guess, a relatively large sort of super production uh, type film for its time, and it stars Anna Pavlova, who is a, a famous the most famous uh, dancer in the world at that point in time and adapts this uh, sort of operetta. And uh, it, it definitely has the sort of stagey uh, tableau style filmmaking that you might expect from the teens in the middle section. But at the beginning of the film and towards the end, uh, Weber does pull off some rather remarkable uh, touches. There's a a uh, series of sort of dissolves and these like crossfades with Anna Pavlova dancing uh, sort of over black void or over these clouds that sort of look like the clouds at the end of uh, Terrence Davies' The Long Day Closes, of all things, hmm. uh, which are sort of like these little experimental touches. And at the end, it sort of is this story of a, a woman who falls in love with a who's a poor woman who falls in love with this rich count who's dressing up as a uh, sort of impoverished peasant for some plot reason that I can't remember. The plot's not that interesting, but uh, the peasants all revolt at the end. And at, when, at that point in the film, it really sort of stylistically ignites and starts cutting all these tableau shots uh, it, it, quite suddenly into these really fast-moving uh, diagonal dollies that sort of after all that tableau uh, staging make the film feel very 3D suddenly. And there's a kind of uh, Langian flavor to the crowd scenes of this mob having a sort of uh, like singular nervous system and the way that Weber understands how they all move together and she is, is quite good at, at sort of establishing uh, a uh, frame that allows the whole mob to move within it in a way that's uh, very exciting. Uh, it, just basically really competent action filmmaking, essentially. Uh, and so not something that, like I said, adds up to anything that's revelatory, but those little touches, uh, I quite enjoyed. So, How was, uh, how was Pavlova as a, as a silent movie actress? She was fine. I mean, she didn't register as any any great presence. The, there are some dancing sequences in the movie, which actually do feel uh, quite a bit ahead of their time. Not that I'm an expert in uh, films from that era, but uh, Weber does shoot sort of throughout uh, the sequences of dancing in the aristocrats sort of village that's atop the, the hovels that the, the poor live in down on the beach side below. And they're very geometric and uh, look sort of, proto Busby Berkeley in, in the way that they have all these figures moving in these geometric forms. And then she'll have a dance sequence with the, with the poor people living down uh, on the beach, which is much more uh, sort of flailing and, and free form. Uh, and so the movie sort of engages with both styles of, of dance. So uh, it is sort of doing something a little bit interesting there as well. But uh, yeah, I mean, Pavlova is fine, but the, she's just there to be able to dance really. And, and that's that's enough.
That sounds really cool. I uh, did not make it to that or the screener for that. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I would recommend it. It's it's fun. What about you, Ryan? Did you see any uh, any archival films that caught your interest? I know you saw well, the. One. Yeah, I saw one archival film in the last half, and it was the best film I saw at the festival. Uh, even edging out the the Hong. It was uh, Alvis Karastami's Taste of Cherry, uh, made in 1997, which was was the film uh, that he won the Palme d'Or for. And it essentially is, uh, it follows in the, in uh, in the more narrative veins of of Karastami. And with the exception of the coda, there isn't as much uh, meta, there aren't as much uh, meta elements. Uh, it follows the story of a of a taxi driver, Mr. Badi, as he basically drives around looking for someone who will bury him uh, should he succeed in a suicide attempt via uh, sleeping pills. And the whole film is set almost uh, exclusively inside the car that he drives around, and he uh, and it follows his uh, three encounters with a soldier a seminarian and a uh, worker at a museum. And the whole thing is uh, done with uh, this very clear uh, mode of restraints, but it becomes uh, so absolutely devastating, especially after there's this uh, interlude set in a construction site uh, that that uh, just has just a such a profound effect in the way it uses uh, this this figure of this uh, middle-aged man just standing in the middle of these like huge uh, these huge mounds of, of rubble and these giant construction and it's like so it is a very uh, a very a film very much of its own time but it feels universal in a way because uh, his the reason for his uh, decision to commit suicide is never explained. It's never uh, it's never clarified. In uh, a in a way that's doesn't really feel like uh, it's being elided at all. It feels just out of out of reach. But uh, because of that, it it works somehow. It's it's just a film that that just absolutely that that feels absolutely haunting. And the, and just the conclusion and the epilogue, if you will, uh, are just all absolutely remarkable. Was it? Was this your first time seeing that? Yes, and it was actually. Uh, I should add that it was uh, actually shown on thirty-five. The oh really? Uh, yeah, the website oh, that would that could have gotten me out to see it. Yeah, but, yeah the, the it website nice said that uh, they, inter- yeah, they <laughs> advertised that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the website it said actually it was the new 4K restoration, but mm-hmm. I guess maybe because uh, the director's son uh, Ahmad Kirostami was there, maybe he requested that it be 35, and it was uh, absolutely wonderful. The print looked good then. Yeah, it was good. Uh, yeah. Maybe a, a little bit scratched up, but it was still uh, very clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I think I saw someone on Twitter, or a bunch of people on Twitter recently posting. Uh, a question that was something like, you know, if you could go back and see any film uh, when it premiered 
initially, what would that be? And I think there are a lot of like obvious choices, like, you know, seeing the original cut of Magnificent Ambersons or, or something like that. But this is one of those films that I actually have always wanted to know what it felt like to see that film premiere at Cannes because it, a lot of the 90s Kurosami films, I think now seeing them don't feel as revelatory as maybe they did at the time because I think he's had such a big influence, especially on the sort of company, the the uh, the hybridization of, of documentary and, and fiction filmmaking and his embrace of digital. And I think... At this point in time, I'm not sure that there would have been any films at Cannes that would have played in the competition that would have had uh, anything shot on digital. Obviously, Godard and, and some other people had been, high-profile people had been uh, playing with digital earlier. But I, I think about that that final sequence in the film a lot, actually. And uh, I would love to know what it would have felt like to to be in that room, sort of as Kirsami, who I think is inarguably one of the the greatest uh, filmmaking talents to emerge in the second half of the 20th century, sort of when he came onto the scene in, in a big way with Taste of Cherry. So, yeah, uh, it's a great film. I'm, I'm, imagine, be not, I'm imagining. Go what, ahead. I'm imagining what the the Twitter comments on the coda <laughs> for that film out of can <laughs> would have been. The immediate tweet reactions. Yes, it was like uh, it's a good movie. Why did he screw up the ending so much? <laughs> Uh, it might be worth noting uh, going into like some of the the uh, outer the 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 critical response to it. Like it was uh, it was the f- film that of course won the Palme d'Or, and it was and it was uh, intensely divided. Uh, Roger Ebert gave it uh, one out of four, uh, and then Rosen like and he like wrote a review that uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum like responded directly to. Like in in his own review, and uh, Rosenbaum also mentioned that there was actually, I think it was a at some showings in Italy that uh, Kiarostami uh, excised this coda, uh, like as a sort of experiment to see like how the audience would react uh, with this with like the with the already ambiguous uh, ending of the of the film of the uh, narrative proper versus this uh this intensely uh this intensely meta uh one could say it feels like it by all rights it should come as something out of left field but it works uh, uh, somehow the ending makes the movie it's it's yes. what makes it you know it's the difference between a, a really good movie and a great movie is is mm-hmm. that ending mm-hmm. uh it's so good mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, I was walking out of uh, a ghost story just as that was was starting, and I could have gone in, and I'm like, I'm tired. I just want to go home. <laughs> <laughs> and that was my that was my last film at the festival was was a ghost story. So I, it could have been 35 millimeter taste of cherry, but no, I was tired. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, I mean, the ghost story, uh, David Lowry talked about being influenced by Kiristami. I don't know if he was at the screening that Ryan and I uh, saw, and he talked about that. I don't know if he was at your screening, Sean. He was not. They they yeah. put it in, like, the smallest auditorium. Really? Oh. oh. Yeah. And it was actually, I had to, uh, because it took me so long to find a parking spot, uh, I had to wait in, like, pass holder standby line to get in. I was, like, wedged <laughs> I didn't know that was in the, the thing. front corner. Yeah. 
because they have like a certain allotment of pass holders they let in and then when they let all of them in then the ticket holders go in and then if there's any seats left then the pass holders get in and then if there's any seats after that then other people who want to buy tickets can get in you don't really need to know all that anyway <laughs> <laughs> i was like wedged way down in front and i could have gone to taste of cherry but i i didn't i've still only seen that movie once i it, honestly it, it feels like something i don't want to watch again yeah i've only seen it once too i think yeah yeah i don't know but it's great it's it's an amazing movie i could definitely rewatch it again it's just like it has a very certain charge like it deals with that notion of like the of not the sanctity of life but of the necessity of life in a way that just absolutely that that just affects me on such a profound level yeah, I watched I watched the coda a couple of times last week. Oh, really? I was looking for a for an image for the the header of our oh, yeah. of our of the site for last week, and mm-hmm. so I I capped a, an image out of that. So I watched the coda. A few I, times. It's not even my favorite Kurosami film of of the '90s, and it's just it's still one of the greatest. So. It's, I I prefer it to uh, Wind Will Carry Us and yeah. Close Up. Which are the only other two? The only other two I've seen. I love yeah. the I love very favorite. Yeah, they're all good. Clearly, yeah. yeah. Close up is the only uh, other Kirstami I've seen. It's it's one of like top five if if I want to go into my pedantic <laughs> ratings. But yeah, it's but absolutely like both are just total, totally great films. Well, and Ryan, did you say that uh, Kirstami's son? said that uh, at the screening that Criterion might be releasing, uh, or Janice, rather, would, would maybe be releasing the Kurosami film that premiered in Cannes, is that right? Yeah, 24 Frames. Yeah. Which, uh, which, as far as I know, you broke that news. I had not heard that anywhere else. Yeah, yeah it was it was uh, very nice of him to say that. And then also the restorations of his, of of like the films from his first 20 years working as a filmmaker. Though I'm not, I don't think that will be through Janice. I could be wrong. Cool. Uh, I saw, I saw two archival films. Uh, one was uh, brainstorm, which is uh, the, uh, the VR film with, with Christopher Walken and uh, Natalie Wood directed by Douglas Trumbull. And it was okay. Uh, Trumbull seems to think seem to think like really highly of it. He was there to talk about it, and he has like a this whole like PowerPoint presentation he does on it. So apparently he's he's done this a lot. Uh, he actually gave a PowerPoint presentation. Yeah, there were, there were like slides and everything. Uh, um, but I I am like the 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 human being who is less interested in virtual reality than any other person on the planet. I just I don't care. Uh, Brainstorm is mainly of interest as uh, it seems to be where David Foster Wallace got the idea for the the tape in Infinite Jest because it is it is a plot point in in the movie is that exact thing uh, and and Natalie it's, it was Natalie Wood's last performance and and she's really terrific but uh, but other than that the movie is just it's fine it's fine. Uh, the other one that is actually really good, though, is uh, Love and Duty, which is a 1931 Chinese film by uh, Bu Wen Wong Kong uh, and stars uh, Ruan Ling Yu 
and uh, it's it's basically just a, a big romantic melodrama about uh, uh, a, a guy who marries the girl next door, even though um, their families oppose the the marriage, which sends them from like this rich, comfortable middle class life into poverty, and he dies, and she's like this miserable like seamstress and uh uh yeah it's a bit it's it's like a edward for and edna firmer ferber like kind of generational melodrama kind of thing where like her daughter grows up and is trying to get into rich society but somebody recognizes her from her yeah it's it's all that kind of thing but it's it's great because of ron ling Yu, who is just amazing this is only the second movie i've seen her in and oh really yeah she's yeah. so good yeah and the the restoration is really cool it's uh like i think i said this on the last episode but it's like one of the things that sif does that's really good is these archival presentations of shanghai films mm-hmm. and that was really cool and the uh and uh uh in attendance was this 95 year old actress named uh let me look up her name so I get it right. Uh, Chin Yi, who was married to the lead actor in the film. Uh, sometime later, she was married to him, but, but Chin Yi was, was there because she had written and produced a movie that she also stars in that is not very good at all. But she was there also for... Um, uh, uh, Love and Duty, which was kind of weird because... Uh, you're like sitting in a room with somebody who was married to the guy who acted with Ron Ling Yu. <laughs> so that was kind of trippy <laughs> for me. <laughs> Cosplaying uh, center stage or something. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was just, it was, it was very strange for what a small world it can be sometimes. Right. Well, and just yet have that link all the way back to the thirties. You know, yeah. Anywhere in the world, let alone Shanghai, and, and all the turmoil that happened in in China, and you know, in the intervening years, uh, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, it was really cool. And and Donald Sosen was there doing the the piano score, and that was neat. Yeah, yeah, I do wish I'd gotten out to see this one. Uh, I've actually seen a couple other films by the same filmmaker uh, that I like quite a bit. So uh, actually, I actually hadn't realized it was the same filmmaker until just now, but yeah, I've, um, I've, I've a spray of plum, boss, uh, plum blossoms is, uh, really good. And three modern women, uh, is also good. So I think I've seen one of his movies, but I think a spray of plum blossoms may have played a prior SIF as one of their sort of Shanghai films. I'm not sure, but, uh, the, the guy who uh, sort of programmed these was a former professor of mine. So I can't remember. I may have mentioned, uh, so I can never remember what he showed to me in class and what he played as if, but uh, I definitely watched some of, um, uh, Bu Wong Kong's films in, in his class. So anyways, they're, they're yeah. good. Yeah. How well does it handle the two and a half hour running time? Oh, it was fine. I mean, it's, it's all, it's all just, melodrama romantic melodrama it's all it's all plot it's not like you know a two and a half hour slow cinema thing it's <laughs> it's like watching any hollywood epic it's it's basically the same as that it's totally fine okay uh yeah i mean i i could watch it's just it's all plot you, you can watch plot endlessly yeah there's apparently there's a uh, shaw brothers 
uh, remake of the film too. Uh, be kind of curious to know more about that. But yeah, I mean, it's it's cool. It's it's great. I mean, it's it's from 1931, and and I mean, just on its own, it has value just in recognizing that that Shanghai cinema was doing sophisticated quality drama at a time when nobody thinks that Chinese film even existed. Uh, even, you know, you know, rabid cinephiles have hardly seen any Shanghai movies. I mean, I've hardly seen any Shanghai movies and I spent like most of the last three years watching Chinese films. So yeah, any, any excuse to, to watch more is always a good idea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, moving on, you're next, Evan. Uh, well, what else did I say? Well, we talked about, we mentioned Ghost Story, which uh, I did have the displeasure of sitting through. Uh, <laughs> I was not a fan of, speaking of slow cinema, that feels like it's two and a half hours long. Uh, this movie kind of drove me crazy. Uh, I think that David, so David Lowry talked about it after the film and he seems like a very nice articulate, uh, person who I think has, you know, a, a frame of reference for the films that he is interested in that is not entirely dissimilar from my own, but I could not get past the fact that everything about the style of this movie felt like a total put on to me, like someone making slow cinema, for an audience of people that he thought couldn't quite handle the actual rigors of slow cinema. So sort of jerry-rigged a movie uh, backwards from the uh, stylistic tics that he wanted to employ, but was constantly afraid that the audience, that he was losing his audience. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff in the movie that just feels like it's really trying to make the audience feel comfortable with what he's doing stylistically. Uh, like that sequence uh, partway through where there's a party s sequence in the house and there's a sort of like drunk guy in overalls who's ranting about... Will Oldham, uh, the... right? Like, oh, I don't think I, I think know who that is. Uh, Will Oldham, he's in like all the uh, Kelly Reichert movies, I think. Oh, yes, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, you're right, now that you say that. But yes, he's, he like rants about, I don't know, time and space and death or something. I don't know. It just the felt nature like, of existence. Or, yeah, sure. I don't know. <laughs> it, it was very, uh, felt very on the nose uh, to me. And the, again, I just think that a lot of the slow cinema films, like thinking of like How Ha or something like that, they arrive at a sort of metaphysics uh, through being very spare. And this film, I think, occasionally tries to be spare. Like there's this shot of, of Rooney Mara scarfing down a pie for five minutes that just holds on her doing that. Uh, and I mean, that scene is, she's quite good and very committed to eating this pie, which, you know, looks difficult to do. But I don't think the movie quite trusts that kind of filmmaking. And it really insists on foregrounding the metaphysical elements of the film so that the audience is safe in knowing what the film is, is really about ultimately. And um, I think he kind of, before the film started, he gave a little spiel and sort of warned people. And maybe that just sort of soured me a little bit, but I felt like the whole movie was constantly warning the audience about, about what it actually was. And, and that kind of put me off. 
Yeah, that's. Uh, I'm wondering if if his introduction kind of ruined it for you because I went in to the movie knowing nothing about it and he wasn't there and I would not have thought it was attempting to ape slow cinema or a picture pong where at the goal or anything at all. Mm. Like it, it never even really occurred to me other than like the long shot of, of Rooney Mara eating the pie. But even then, mostly I was just thinking about how she looked like she'd never eaten a pie before in her life. <laughs> apparently is, is true. According to, uh, uh, David Ehrlich did an interview with with David Lowry, and and he quotes him as saying that she'd never eaten pie before. So, <laughs> what? Yeah, it was a vegan. She's vegan American, vegan right? Free. Yeah, yeah, but she's like incredibly wealthy. Well, she's like, <laughs> oh, like her family is wealthy. And yeah, her 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 grandparents. Eyes, right? Her grandparents are the owners of the uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers and the New York Giants respectively, like the Rooney family and the Mara family own mm. the two NFL teams. Wait, so her, her family's last name is also her first name? Yes. Well, that explains it. Yeah. <laughs> Not eating pie. Yeah, she's like, yeah. Anyway, I, I, I like the movie a lot. <laughs> and I, I wonder was... if, if that was because I didn't have that expectation going into it. Like, I wasn't looking for it to be where was ethical like so i just was taking it as like a hollywood movie that was doing something like a little bit different than hollywood well it's important to note that's an a24 movie versus a hollywood movie which itself has its own sort of uh if not a well, they, total they like, just distribute things right they don't they don't produce well, yeah but the but well except for like moonlight or something like that but they have a very specific i think method by which they approach what they're going to what they're going to distribute uh like it there's always like a vaguely arty uh sense to it which uh which works for some movies like i loved like moonlight and 20th century women but uh for other movies it it doesn't work uh like swiss army man i guess but for ghost story i did i did like it but i had very strong reservations like i was with evan and the i had heard like the weird ethical uh comparisons a lot but i hadn't really heard the kurosami but it doesn't really feel like either to me like it has it's just like his own spare sense of or like he had i haven't seen any of his other films but it feels like he has just like it's just spare and there wasn't and while like i could see like it was very well accomplished like the the actual ghost costume is like very well done and like the staging of scenes is uh very pretty like i couldn't really feel a sense of passion behind a lot of it which uh which was which made for a fairly confusing watch yeah i mean uh, if if i had to pick a movie to compare it to uh, it would not be any asian cinema at all I, I would compare it more to like under the skin which is that is that an a24 movie also yeah <laughs> yeah very and, much so but yeah. I, in 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 that it's not it's not slow cinema it's not like long takes of like real things unfolding in time and and often not a lot happening because there's always something happening and the takes aren't that long because the time is constantly shifting forward and back so it may be like a long shot but it's not it's not durational in your relation to what's happening on screen like you're not 
feeling like the real passage of time because the movie is constantly messing with the passage of time, jumping forward and then and then eventually backwards in time. So and while staying in in one space. So I don't know. I, yeah, mean, I, I, I thought a... I thought it, I thought it was nice. I mean, it was uh, it wasn't. Uh, I I think it probably isn't. A, it, it probably thinks it's more profound than it actually is. And then, mm -hmm. but I'm okay with that because I, I wasn't expecting it to be, prof be profound. I thought it was just like a nice kind of romance. Mm -hmm. I think it's... The, yeah, I, I kept thinking about how it's, it's, it's like about what happens to the past once it gets left behind. And it's kind of more the interesting metaphor going on with it there. But, you know, I... I think it's uh, it's a movie that if you aren't on its wavelength like right away, it's really easy to make fun of it and, and dismiss it. Which yeah, I think is a lot of the reaction that it's getting now. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I felt it just kind of silly. I, I will say though too, I think more than even his introduction, which may have colored the my expectations for the film. The thing that immediately got me off its wavelength was the music, which I just could not abide this the music really drove me crazy in this film and that's certainly one thing it does not have in common with uh the people that lowry referenced as, as sort of influences is that the music is lathered all over this movie and you know yeah, i did not like the music and and it being so prominent i think was also a reason why i, I had a hard time getting into it people need to take music lessons from ozu mm. Ozu, Ozu scores are always counter to the emotions in his films, and it makes mm -hmm. an interesting dynamic as opposed to the Hollywood tradition of music emphasizing the emotions in the right. film. And something like this needed something different. I'm or just less. I'm gonna like, do like, I, you know. Yeah, I'm going to do like eerie modernism that's going to get really loud and spooky. <laughs> yeah, or, you know, just no music at all. Because why would there be music in the afterlife? I think yeah, there's a version of this movie with no soundtrack that I actually I could see myself liking quite a bit more. Uh, because I do think that I, I too didn't feel like a it being particularly profound. I certainly didn't have much of an emotional reaction to it. But I wonder if it would have felt more emotionally mysterious to me in a way that to me, it just felt like I was locked out of what it was doing emotionally. But if it didn't have the music, I think, really cueing what the emotion was supposed to be, I think I could have been allowed myself to just sort of experience the movie's emotions in a more mysterious way and not be really sure of what it was trying to do at any given moment. But the, the music kept, like I said, sort of reminding me and the rest of the audience, like, no, this is where we are, you know, emotionally, this is the train we're on. And... Uh, I think I would have liked a movie that was a little bit more willing to be dangerous and allow us to just sort of go go off on our own into this space that he creates. Because the house and the way he shoots the house is undeniably, uh, I think, quite beautiful. Yeah, I think I think it's a it's kind of a, a fool's errand hoping for a, a Hollywood film that that doesn't tell you exactly what it is at every moment. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Uh, I, so, just, I don't uh, think it's in the American character. I can't think of an American movie that doesn't do that. <laughs> yeah. 
but before we leave a ghost story, I think it's uh, somewhat important to acknowledge that. Uh, so after the the during the Q and A uh, that after the film that I that I attended, uh, like he was. Lowry was asked about his influences, and then he talked about like uh, Timing Lang, Ho Chao Shen, uh, Where Seth Cole. Uh, he specifically mentioned uh, Carlos Regadas and uh, Post Tenebras Lux. And I can say with no uh, no small degree of certainty, like 95% of the audience had never heard of any of those uh, those filmmakers. And while I'm and well, I don't while I'm think any of them have ever played Seth. <laughs> <laughs> and and while I and while I'm also almost as certain that he won't uh, that his recommendation won't have any of them seeking out those films, like it's interesting at the very least that he brought the those names to the ears of the audience. And what I can't tell if that's if if his film helped or hurt his cause, but it's a worthy cause all the same. Yeah, except for Regatus. <laughs> I Regatus, but it's at least like this. Actually, this film in its look is closest to Regatus without the like fish eye thing and post ten breast locks. I think I've I've only seen Silent Light. I, I did not care for it. You don't see post ten breast locks, Sean. I I won't. Not that you're planning to, but <laughs> yeah, I, I'm giving I, you extra permission I, to never see it. I think I, I've been <laughs> intentionally avoiding that for what five years now. <laughs> I think I feel like people forgot about that movie, so you're pretty safe. I think. Yeah. All right. David uh Ryan, what's uh, what's next for you? Well, uh, so this this is a particularly interesting case. So it's uh, Nocturama, which is uh, by Bertrand Bonello, uh, which was a fairly controversial film, at least in cinephile circles, last year. Uh, Bonello is the director of. Of Saint Laurent and House of Tolerance, which has, I think, risen to this to the canon the the of this decade at the very least. And so Nocturama follows basically a a group of young terrorists who uh, first execute a highly coordinated series of bombings across Paris, and then spend the second half of the uh, of the film hold up in an abandoned department store, which notably is the, of course this is an extended film, but it's the same uh, store used in uh, Holy Motors, the scene with, uh, well, like the, the scene with uh, a woman singing. Kylie Minogue. Yeah, Kylie Minogue, yeah. right. Uh, and, and so it's a, a very curious film because I, 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 I would say, easily that it was the second best uh, new film I saw. But at the same time, I couldn't really get into it emotionally. Like it's a very uh, precise film and it's a really powerfully directed film. And I think very powerfully felt film. Um, Bonello like has always had this penchant for these, for really getting into, I guess the, the, the groove of his films and and it's interesting to see him like adopt the languor of his films into a much more urgent drive, especially in the first half. Uh, but at the same time, I think that his precision is precisely why I can't really get into it. Like, even though I can sense that his character, I can sense like the character's emotional journey, journey, it never really connects to me. 
so I was so I was very interested by Nocturama. I was very moved on a visceral level, especially in the it has perhaps the loudest gunshots I've ever heard in a film, which is used to like very startling effect, especially in the in the climax. But I'm not certain if I could really get into it. Have Have you seen a Michael Mann movie in a theater? <laughs> That's what I said. I said Heat. Ryan and I were talking about this earlier. Well, Heat, but, there's a, but there's a very different feeling to it. Like, uh, like for Heat, it's all about like the way they uh, they like echo across like the, these open city blocks. Whereas in Nocturama, it's these very and like in Heat, it's always these like uh, these like assault rifle bursts. Whereas in Nocturama, it's these very sharp cracks in in this uh, in this department store and. And like each one, and you and you almost never see, like who's firing, like be, and uh, sure. And it's all about like the the perspective. Like they they never see who's firing, but they just know that e- with each bullet, each bullet like means something. Yeah, I'm just saying that like the way man mixes his films, I, his gunshots in in the theater, I've never heard anything louder than that. But I didn't see Nocturne in the theater. I, I watched it at home. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did, what did you think of Nocturama, Evan? Well, I've seen it twice now. I'm really conflicted on this movie. I Like Ryan, I I share the sense that it it viscerally got to me, like it sort of triggered the lizard brain uh, part of me uh, pretty strongly. And I think as this sort of like haute couture, like death trap movie, uh, I really liked how it, how it sort of looks in the second half and the style when, when they get into the department store. But I have this nagging sense with Bonello that he's like too clever for his own good. And I think especially the first half of Nocturama, I think really hedges so frequently against ever committing to any kind of ideology that it's so abstract that there's no weight to what they're doing and when they get into the department store you know i think the the signal image from the film is uh i think the sort of uh i don't know if he's he's moroccan or or tunisian um uh kid uh looking at the mannequin who is dressed just like he is and i think the movie wants to sort of make this critique of these kids who uh, engage in in violent act political acts, uh, but then also sort of are interested in this you know late capitalist uh, designer culture. And I'm just not sure that the movie is capable of of having it both ways because Bonello so clearly takes pleasure himself in that space and the sort of uh, rich, literally and figuratively rich textures of this department store that I'm just not sure I buy whatever the film's doing ideologically in, in the in the first part. And I think all of his movies sort of suffer a little bit from this over-calculation of, of having this, this concept that he sets up in such a way that he never can quite be pinned down on it. And it's one of those movies where if you say, well, he, you know, I think makes this sort of critique, but it's it's shallow and he himself is... I think succumbs to his own, the, the thing he's critiquing, you know, it's very easy to just shout, well, like, that's the point, like, that's what the movie is and what it's trying to do. And right. I'm just not that's, sure. 
that's exactly my reaction to it. I think it, I think it's really cheap. Yeah, the way he he plays it both ways, and then can just say, "Yeah, my characters are shallow and have no motivation because it's a movie about shallow characters who have no motivation, and the movie is shallow and has no motivation because that's what the characters are like." And well, yeah, and I think just even in the more like basic level of of the way the movie's like cast and constructed he really he really does that too and sort of hedges right because he has this like rainbow coalition of mm-hmm. of young people where even if we don't get a sense of their their ideology per se i mean they have some sort of like anti capitalist kind of i guess like ideology but he goes very far out of his yeah kind of he goes very far out of his way though to make it clear that it's not not something that's motivated by any kind of ethnic religious or uh really even like cultural uh values that they share and i think in a way that undercuts whatever he's trying to do with the film because they just don't register as as any kind of entity uh, as a group that makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's a movie that, that doesn't have any conviction. It doesn't even believe in the nothingness at its own heart. Uh, well, it, re- it reminded me of, uh, of Dangerous Encounters, First Kind, the, the Troy Hark film about uh, uh, young kids who uh, grow up in like this incredibly violent world and respond to it by like just placing bombs in like movie theaters and random acts of violence and a girl who like tortures her pet rats and they're just like these incredibly vile teenagers that get caught up in like a much worse uh kind of political violence going on around them and that's a film that like believes in in the violence and the anarchism of its youth and every every inch of that movie is like seething with that anger and and disaffection uh nocturama is not like that at all it's like the opposite of that well i wouldn't say it's 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 the style of of revolt and if you know you were to come back and say that that's what it that's what it's about it's that like the youth are all style with no actual conviction well i mean i think that's just like a really cheap answer. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's also well, one that I don't, Oh, sorry, Ryan, go ahead. Okay. Well, I wouldn't say it's quite going for, for that either, because uh, like, so I think it's uh, very crucially, there are two flashbacks during the otherwise uh, very propulsive uh, first half that, that uh, somewhat, but not entirely re- like uh, reveal how the group came together. And it's like a very, random way it seems like that that the group found each other but and then in the second in the second uh flashback it's very clearly tries to create this sense of if nothing else uh, a community and uh and you see that community sort of unraveling as they as they spend more and more time like in the second half dealing uh, mentally, with what they've with what they've done, and if nothing else, I feel like Benello wants wants the viewer to believe in the characters. And for my own part, I found them uh, their at least like their emotional journey, like their own separate emotional journeys, and as a group, to be uh, very convincing. So I'm so yes, it's difficult to say what if any uh, ideology Bonello is trying to convey, but on a purely 
character-based level, I think it works quite well. Well, the weird thing for me about the characters, though, is I think, as as Sean says, I do kind of think style, like the revolt or, or the style of revolt, as you said, is, is actually, I think that gets right to the heart of the film. Uh, and yet, like, I, I just don't even know that these people exist in the world. Like, I think that's my, really, my core issue with the film. Like, the movie is trying to have this critique and have it both ways, and I find that a little bit problematic, I suppose. But if it really felt like it was targeting something that existed out there in the world, I might be more willing to cut it some slack in, in it trying to dissect this thing. But I'm just not sure that we live in a world where like young 20 somethings like have this kind of like violent political conviction. Like I just don't, I don't see the analogs of these people in, in the real world. And so I'm not sure what the film, uh, exists to tell me about young people. And it feels like it's a movie that very much wants to tell me something. Uh, I don't think it's just an exercise in style entirely. I think Vanel has done that before. That's what Saint Laurent looks like. And this is not quite that. So I'm just not sure what I'm supposed to make of these kids. Yeah, well, that's an interesting like, point. It's like, 20, uh, yeah, it's like 21st century kids put back in like the sixties and seventies. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but I think it's very important to note that it's, I think it feels to me like a film, especially rooted in, it's both feels rooted in a very certain time and place. Like it's very clearly set in 2015. Like it, it uses uh, like all of the modern technology. Like there's extensive use of surveillance cameras. There's even uh, when they're walking through the subways, like I noticed a, uh, a poster Fantastic Four reboot, uh, but at the same time, it's uh, it feels slightly alien in a certain way. Like that, I suppose that's sort of a byproduct of of uh, Bonello's style for me. But it's a it's interesting to note. Like it feels both very much of a time and slightly out of time. Yeah, and and I should add that while I don't think the movie is is all that great is you know all that's you know smart or compelling i think it's like a first-rate thriller just yes. as mm -hmm. yeah. like suspense action filmmaking i think it's it's as good as as anything in the last couple of years mm -hmm. uh i just i just don't think that it's uh nearly as profound as it wants to be Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think I may be overstating the extent to which I, I mean, I, I quite like the film, I think, like I, I, like I said, I guess I am just really torn on it, but I have thought about it a lot, and I revisited it the night after I watched it, I saw it two nights in a row, because I, I do find something really fascinating about it, but at the same time, every time I reach out and feel like I've almost grasped it, it, it sort of slithers away, I think, a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I really I love the way how at the end he uses uh, uses sound cues to orient you in time mm -hmm. for like things happening in simultaneous locations. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that's that's really cool, and it's like an analog of like the timestamps that he uses in the beginning of the films. I think mm -hmm. it's it's really slickly put together, and it's mm -hmm. you know. It's a really and tense that, and exciting. I love that thriller. scene where he uh, lip syncs to the Shirley Bassey song. Right, the My Way. My Way. Yeah. My Way, yeah. That, I love that scene, too. So, yeah. I mean, it's got a lot of stuff to recommend it by, for sure, yeah. I think. 
and in general has a absolutely killer soundtrack like he has a like uh like he has both like his own synth soundtrack which he uses very well and then there's a rather nice selection of of existing songs including uh willow smith's i whip my hair <laughs> forth i think yeah i think i think it's i think it's really good i think you just have to beware of films that that seem to be intent on capturing like where we are now mm -hmm. because this does not do that I yeah if anything i think it's wrong about where we are now yeah. it's funny about it like it yeah. gets it wrong so but I, I won't say whether it's it's wrong or right. I'll just say that it it what it's portraying compels in its own very certain way. Like it if you if you say that it's that it's relevant its relevance, uh, like it still does that without without trying to be like specifically relevant. Like I uh, there's it's, it has a, as you said a slipperiness about as a slipperiness about the way it approaches everything, which could be either, which I think is both a pro and a But con. don't you see, Ryan, that's the point. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I mean, maybe. So the only other uh, uh, really big movie that kind of snuck into my top five uh, of the festival is uh, is Columbus, which I liked... A lot and I think you guys kind of worked as high on it is that correct I, had, I couldn't get the screener to work yeah. Evan uh, yeah I was not not into it yeah that that makes me sad I, I really like this this, this is uh, the first feature by uh, uh, Kogonada who's the uh, uh, video essayist from like the dawn of the video essay era uh, and it's it's uh, starts John Cho as a it's like a writer or an edit, uh, translator who is in Columbus, Indiana, because his father, who was a famous architect, uh, has had like a stroke or a heart attack or something, and there's a coma in the hospital there. So he's basically there waiting for his estranged father to die. And while he's there, he meets a young girl who works in the library, who is a huge fan of architecture and is sticking around the small town mostly to hang out with her mother who is a uh, recovering heroin addict uh, and the two of them have like meet they have conversations they fight and it all basically is a stealth ozu film where the grown-ups are attempting to get the young woman to leave home and get on with her life and she really doesn't want to do that uh, and it's just it's nice. It's very nice. The performances are really cool. There's a lot of uh, Columbus. Apparently, has like a surprising amount of famous modern modernist architecture, which is not an architectural style that I like. But the movie like convinced me of why uh, people would like it, and it is a, it's especially fitting for an Ozu-ish story with its like right angles and strong lines and such. So. Yeah, I think it, I think it's a really I think it's a really good movie, and from a, a director who, like unlike a ghost story, I think has like a really distinct approach and and style that is something that we haven't quite seen before and hasn't just been kind of made palatable for for a Hollywood audience. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, all the architectural stuff that you highlighted is the stuff that I really liked in the film and responded to. And I did not go into Columbus thinking that I would want to then go visit Columbus, Ohio. But, uh, and I like, oh, sorry, yeah, Indiana. Or Illinois. Uh, no, it, no, it's Ohio. Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. No. Yeah. Am I, Indiana. What? Columbus, Indiana. Well, no, it's Ohio. Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll step in as the as the moderator, the, the arbiter here. I think we're just showing our you know bi coastal elite. I'm looking, uh, I'm looking at the the letterbox summary right now. Columbus, Indiana. Is it a different than city than Columbus, Ohio? Yeah, Columbus, Ohio is is a different city from Columbus, Indiana. They are two separate oh, states. Oh, see, I didn't. Okay, I didn't even realize that. <laughs> Well, there you go. I guess that's where I'm going to visit is Columbus. Clearly, I wasn't paying that close attention to this movie. But uh, uh, I don't know. The architecture stuff I, I do like, uh, and he does shoot it quite well. Um, and I really like his video essays. I think he has a very clear sense of space and understanding of space, which comes through in his video essays. Like I think the the, the primary thing about him as a video essayist is his ability to sort of take space in different films and decontextualize them so that you see the space in these films that you know quite well in a sort of new way. Like I think the about his video essay about Ozu's hallways, uh, actually a lot, uh, whenever I end up sort of rewatching Ozu films, um, because he really just sort of short, like shears the, the hallways uh, of any of the narrative context and you just sort of see them in this in this new way i think it at its best columbus does something similar to the spaces that he shoots in the film um sort of makes them stand on their own what i was uh, less into in the film was the sort of narrative uh and the the relationship between the two characters uh i felt that neither of them was really developed in a way that I felt any sort of connection to them. And it's one of those films where I see why the sort of architectural elements, the stylistic elements of it are tied to this story, but I'm not really sure that in execution that they have any kind of dialectic that enriches the either. Like it just sort of felt like this before sunset esque story happening amidst this architecture. And I'm not quite sure that I, I saw how the film bridged those two things. So I sort of felt myself just wanting the movie to get back to being a documentary about these buildings and, and stop spending time with these people. Uh, I, yeah, I totally disagree. I, I, for one thing, I think it's, it's a lot better than the, the link later films. Uh, I think I think it rather than just kind of being like a travelogue kind of thing. I think I think you you kind of understand what what architecture actually means, like emotionally to these people and how they use you know art or in in general or architecture in in particular to kind of cope with the the various problems in, in their life or or how they don't because the the son kind of rejects all of like the architectural influence of his father which i don't know i i found it all really compelling and and very relatable and i think i think it's helped a lot by by the performances of the two actors who i think are are both really really good 
I don't know. Mm, yeah, I don't know. I think they're fine. I mean, I, I think that, I guess, the way that the architecture... I, I feel uh, Kogonada's relationship to the architecture and what the architecture means to him, and I feel that the two characters are sort of just extensions of his own relationship to the architecture, then rather than being fully rounded people, for me, that was how they sort of registered. But, uh, I mean, I, I, I can't uh, deny that the look of the thing is, is, like you said, I think sort of a unique voice. And he has a way of, uh, the, the lighting in this movie is super controlled. And I'm not really sure, it, a lot of it was clearly must just be natural light because he's just shooting outside. But he has this way of, making all the light in the film feel like he's uh, placed it there himself uh, and has just a very sculptural uh, quality to the way that it's lit, which I appreciate because I think a lot of films of this kind, this sort of lower budget indie film uh, that's trying to maybe look like it's a little bit uh, more of a higher production type movie, I think often don't pay a lot of attention to the way that things are, are lit. And this movie did have a kind of glow to it that I appreciated, but yeah, I just felt totally remote from the, the human drama that is at its core. Is it yeah. digital? Or, so. or 35? Okay. So I, I think it's, it looks like it's probably digital, yeah. yeah. Okay. I, there's there's a, a precision to it, to to all aspects of the mise-en-scene, if you will, the lighting, the, the framing, the, the set design, all, all of it is so like meticulously arranged, which is so counter to to American independent film nowadays, where it's it's much more like like person to person, where it's kind of intentionally looking like cluttered and clumsy or amateurish. Uh, it's it's refreshing to see something so so particular. I think. Yeah, no, I I do, and this is a film too where I mean, as much as I found the the scripting maybe a little bit lacking i would certainly line up to see whatever he does next because i do think that there aren't a lot of films that look like this that are uh being made in this country right now uh and so i think if this is just the opening salvo and he you know i think is someone who grows as a filmmaker with each film i i could certainly find myself really responding to something down the line i think the particulars of this film just maybe uh, wouldn't be the one for me, but I, I would be excited to see what he does next. Yeah, and I can't. I mean, I'm gonna talk about the actors again, but I think I think Haley Lou Richardson was great in The Edge of Seventeen last year as like Definitely. The, as like the best friend. Uh, but John Cho is one of the best actors in Hollywood now, and he never seems to get a role like this meeting and this big. So it's. I mean, it's worth seeing just to see John Cho as the lead of a film. So, yeah, even if you don't care about architecture, go see it for, for him. Uh, so, uh, what else have you got, Evan? <laughs> uh, what else did I see? I think I, that might be it that I saw. I think that sort of wraps it up for me. Uh, uh, did, uh, should we talk about Godspeed? Oh, sure. I did see Godspeed. Wow, I forgot about that movie. Uh, yes. <laughs> well, now I have to remember that I saw this movie. 
Yeah, I don't know. Godspeed. It's about uh, Michael Way, who's a cab driver who gets involved in a sort of uh, murky drug uh, scheme gone awry uh, from sort of these sort of uh, inept criminals. Um, and given that Michael Way is, is the lead in the movie, and that was really about all I knew going into the movie, I had expected a much more comedic movie uh, based on my experience with his uh, sort of famous Hong Kong uh, comedies. Uh, but this film, which was made in Taiwan, uh, is, is much more of an art film than, than I had anticipated. It, it looks really great. It's uh, got this really sort of moody uh, texture, especially at, at nighttime. Um, but considering I forgot that I saw it, uh, I can't really say that it's it's uh, <laughs> stuck with me in any kind of deep way. There is a scene uh, in the middle of it which is uh, as brutal and violent as anything in Johnny Toe's Election 2, a sort of like torture sequence in the middle of this film, um, which uh, was actually one of my favorite uh, sequences in any of the films that I saw at the festival, grueling as it is, it's it's really really well put together. Uh, I'm just not sure the rest of the movie had quite that same charge for me. But Sean, what did you think as uh, Michael Way? You probably know more about Michael Way than I do, so. Yeah, I I'm I'm kind of in agreement with you. I think uh, I think it's interesting how what it, it's basically just kind of like a generic like triad gangster drama that is like completely destabilized by throwing Michael Way into it, who is not really like, it's not like a, a, like a classic comedic performance because I mean, it's, it's a realistic performance as opposed to his own films as a, as a, a director and star, which are more like, you know, kind of vaudevillian silent comedy type things than anything else. Um, but still he's, uh, He's not a figure that fits in the triad movie world. He's like a regular guy who's like his, all the women in his family hate him and he like talks all the time and uh, he's like a low budget or like a low rent like schemer who's like trying to get away with stuff and always just fails. But he doesn't really throw the movie that far off balance. Like it, it's, it's weird. Like it's, at the end of it, it just feels like just another triad movie that is like momentarily enlivened by like a brilliant actor appearing in it for a while. Yeah, I mean, it's a movie too where if he had thrown it off more, like I, I guess when it sort of started and it was in this, because it starts in this like dark club in Thailand and very clearly is telegraphing that it's going to uh, have this element of, of this triad gritty triad thing i was expecting the movie to have a much more whiplash tonal mm-hmm. uh sort of structure from from that point on and that the sequences with michael way would would be really playing against that but you're right they, they don't really and uh as 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 opposed to like him destabilizing and upending the triad genre and turning it into something else instead it just kind of beats him down right it's it just absorbs kind of, him yeah. yeah it's just kind of depressing yeah so, yeah, but it does look nice. And yeah, and the torture is yeah. is you know intense. And the the director uh, uh, Chung Mong Hong, I've seen uh, one of his other films that was also just kind of it was okay. It like it looked good, but it wasn't 
uh, there's the fourth portrait, which I saw in Vancouver like five years ago or something. It was fine. I think this was better than that, but that might just be because of Michael Way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I was, I was disappointed. This was one that I was like really looking forward to in Vancouver last year and didn't get to see it. And then I finally got to see it here and eh. yeah, I can't remember what I skipped it for in Vancouver, but, uh, after seeing it, I, I had a somewhat similar uh, reaction. I, I wanted to see it in Vancouver, but, uh, didn't get to it. And yeah, not, not sad that I didn't necessarily go out of my way, but, uh, yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know. It's fine. What about you, Ryan? Do you have uh, something that is uh, not fine? <laughs> More than fine. Maybe. More than fine. Less than fine. More than fine. Well, I not really, <laughs> but uh, I I do have something That's interesting. For you. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So so this is uh, this film is called Gook uh, by Justin Chan. I really uh, want to see not, that. Yeah, uh, and so it's. Uh, so he both uh, writes, directs, and stars in this. Uh, it's about or set on the first day of the Rodney King riots in LA in 1992, but the but it's actually really more used as a as a background as a setting than as an actual uh, strong plot point. It essentially tells uh, the story as it were, from the point of view of the Korean-American shopkeepers, who were, uh, which is a perspective not often uh, explored in retellings of that, of that events. And so, and it specifically focuses on, uh, on this, uh, this small group. Uh, So Justin Chan as Eli, and then David So as his brother, Daniel, and, their uh, friend and helper in the lady uh, shoe store that they run, uh, Camilla, who's played by Simone Baker. Uh, she's a, a black, uh, a young black girl. And the story essentially just follows them as the, as the events unfold. And for the most part, they're, they're uh, situated away from it, but it seems that it inflames tensions both uh, among them, uh, especially in the relationship between uh, Eli and Daniel, and and it also involves uh, Camilla's older brother Keith, and it's revealed later, like exactly how they're uh, how they're connected, uh, particularly uh, connected, and it and I'm not certain how well it explores the the uh, this black versus Asian tension. And so, but I'm not exactly certain how much it's trying to say about it. Like, I, it's, it feels just more like a in the moment account than anything else. And I think there's some sense of value to it. And it's a very, it's, it's done in a very interesting style. Like it's uh, shot in black and white, uh, digitally in black and white. And uh, Justin Chan was there, and he specifically said that uh, he was influenced by Matthew Kesovitz's uh, La Haine. And it has, and I think it works definitely best uh, when it has a certain sense of remove. Like in the scenes that are more obviously inflamed, or like the scenes that 
uh, that aspire to a certain sense of lyricalness. Uh, I don't think lyricality, I don't think it works particularly well, but when it's just observing them either just working in the store uh, or like discussing things in a more subdued manner, I think it works particularly well. Right on. Yeah, I, I really wanted to say that. I, I didn't get to it. I heard uh, an interview on uh, the uh, They Call Us Bruce podcast that uh, Jeff Yang and Angry Asian Man do, where they interviewed Justin Chan, and the movie sounded really cool, but uh, I was not able to, to make it to it. There was uh, the most baffling uh, question. <laughs> I was wondering I, if you were going to bring this up. Yes. Uh, okay. So I'm not sure. Well, this is obviously not good for the for the person who asked or made the comment but uh she said that she didn't notice it was in black and white until until like they mentioned it during the q and afterwards so like i get i guess yeah i guess like i, I guess she found it so involving that it was that it, that it was... it's lit up in color uh, i mean it so. Yeah, and like it, it uses <laughs> and like, and like again, I'm not entirely certain like whether it uses black and white, like especially black and white to all that effect. But it definitely has like some influence on just the feeling of the film, of course. Hmm. But yeah, it's it's interesting, and I'm not certain whether it works all that well, like as a statement, but as just an experience, it, it's it's fairly good. What's the like style of the? I mean, aside from it being in black and white, uh, what's the style of the film like? Is it? Is it like Clerks? No, it's well, like like artier than that. Yeah, artier. Like I would, I wouldn't by no means say it's an art film, despite clear intentions to be uh, to be an art film. But it has like it has certain moments that throw the throw the otherwise gritty uh down to earth quality into uh that that throw into relief in a certain sense huh. right on yeah i want to see that i i hope it'll uh i hope it'll come back oh it's it's definitely coming back is it it's it, it has a it old has, review yeah oh maybe we'll get the colorized yeah. version there you go <laughs> Uh, well, what what I what I skipped that for was uh, Mr. Long, which is a Taiwanese film directed by Sabu, uh, not the kid who starred in uh, The Thief of Baghdad in 1940, but uh, <laughs> a kind of cult Taiwanese director. Uh, and it is uh, it starts Cheng Chen as an assassin who uh, goes to Tokyo and uh, and fails and gets caught and uh, barely escapes into this kind of uh, this kind of slum uh, somewhere outside of Tokyo or in like the extended Tokyo area where uh, he is befriended by like a young boy who gives him like some vegetables which uh, Cheng Chen turns into a soup because in addition to being like a master assassin he's also apparently a really good chef uh, the kid brings him some clothes and then like some neighbors uh, 
uh, notice that he is there and he makes them food and they think it's like the best food ever so they build him like a, a ramen cart and set him up at a temple where he starts working selling ramen uh, while he's like trying to avoid being recognized by local gang leaders who will then try and kill him and at the same time he uh, meets the kid's mom who is a junkie and she he uh, by like tying her up in a blanket for a couple of days cures her junkiness uh, and then they form like a makeshift happy family uh, for a few days and then uh, uh, she is discovered by her old uh, pimp uh, there's like a long flashback where we learn how she became a junkie and it's it's very sad uh, she gets discovered by her pimp and and it ends tragically and then eventually the gangsters discover that that Cheng Chen is there and he kills them all in front of all of the the local people uh, and then they're all like freaked out so he he goes home and then they come and, and find him again and they form a, like a happy community again uh, so it's really cool <laughs> that sounds good yeah it's like it's this it's uh it is the the kind of offbeat gangster movie that you would, you would hoped that that Godspeed would have been. It's 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 really funny. It's very odd. It doesn't make much sense at all. But it is it is most definitely not what Sif described it as, which is uh, Yojimbo meets uh, Tempopo. Well, which, I guess there's ramen in it. Is that the only? Yeah, my my theory was that those are the only two Asian films that the, <laughs> the person who wrote that had seen. <laughs> but yeah it is it's not like that at all i mean it's it it's 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 basically where a good man goes the the johnny toe movie uh except instead of like a normal middle-class family that the killer kind of insinuates himself into he's he's adopted into like this junky homeless family that are like squatting in rundown shacks on the edge of of town but the same dynamic is there, and it reminded me a lot of uh, of the kind of uh, makeshift communities built in in slums, which uh, you see kind of in uh, Kurosawa's uh, Dodeskadan, which uh, or the Lower Depths, which don't really like give the right kind of sense because those both of those the communities are like really destructive but more like uh Sadao Yamanaka's uh Humanity and Paper Balloons where it's more of kind of a collective against the more moneyed establishment and these people on the margin society building you know a life and community for themselves uh it's just that the people doing it in this case happens to be like a a guy who's like really good at killing people with a knife and also <laughs> you know chopping onions with a knife uh cheng chen is really great he like hardly ever talks through the whole movie he's got really bad hair but he's he's terrific and it's it's weird he he doesn't look like he is aged as much no. as he actually has like 20 years ago he was like the young kid in happy together and he still looks basically the same which is really upsetting to me but uh, <laughs> yeah, whatever he and Andy Lau yeah. are drinking, <laughs> some of that. And Andy Lau's been a movie star for like almost forty years, and he does not look <laughs> it at all. It's really upsetting. Andy Lau was in Boat People in nineteen eighty one, and he looks exactly <laughs> the same as he does now. Jeez. Um, is is a Sabu Chinese filmmaker or Japanese? I don't know. I think he's Taiwanese. I'm I'm not sure. Okay. Interesting. Um, 
Because as you're talking about the the sort of impoverished community that this takes place in, it was sort of occurring to me that that's really not a community or, or a milieu that I think you see very often in Japanese films in the last couple of decades. I really feel like since uh, the 60s guys kind of got older and, and uh, the Japanese new wave scene sort of ended, I feel like so many Japanese films now take place in a much more like upper middle class uh, Tokyo uh, kind of milieu, so that's interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm. Japanese, I, I, in Japan, I, so. I am wrong. Sabu is Japanese. Uh, oh, yeah. okay. Interesting. He, he was in uh, Ichi the Killer, the Takashi Miike film. Oh. Mm-hmm. His uh, it's a pseudonym, obviously. His real name is uh, Hiroyuki Tanaka. Mm-hmm. Anyway, his, he had a film in uh, the in one of the New York Film Festival uh, yeah. so official selections. Yeah, he's he's directed like looks like like a dozen films. I think the only one I'd heard of before is I think Postman Blues, which I haven't seen, mm-hmm. but the name sounds really familiar. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, this is obviously this is the first uh, one of his films I've seen, but it's uh, it's really it's it's well done. It's uh, it's brisk. It's funny. It's uh, the action scenes are, are like really quick and 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 very cool. Um, there's only two of them, but there he he does it well. Uh, it, it's a it's a really nice little movie that will almost definitely not be coming back to Seattle. It's one of like the few that did not have a hold on it that I that I saw and wrote about. Um, I liked it a lot. Uh, yeah, that one sounds like one I would check out if uh, it ever rolls around or is otherwise available. So. Yeah, I was. Uh, there were a lot of, of kind of Asian films and Chinese films that I saw at the festival, and I was disappointed in most of them, which is, which is annoying. Uh, like Soul on a String and Have a Nice Day and God of War. The trailer yeah. for Knife in the Clear Water. <laughs> the trailer for Knife in the Clear Water, which I swear to God put me to sleep. Uh, <laughs> Vampire Cleanup Department and Cook Up a Storm and The Beautiful Coconut Lake, which is What's bad. That? That was the the Chin Yi movie, which oh. was like my really only bad experience with the Sif audience at the festival. Which is like Chin Yi was there, and she is like this like hugely famous stage and film actress. Uh, she started Woman Basketball Player Number Five, like the pre Cultural Revolution film, uh, and she's ninety five years old. She's in the audience with her granddaughter. Uh, she's sitting like across the aisle from me and like two rows behind her is this young girl who like kept laughing at her movie, (laughs) not with her movie, but at it. And it was like really, really rude and and irritating. I'm like, the movie's not good, but I mean, come on. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, that, that was depressing. But, uh, do you have like, what, what was your... Do you have like a top five, or what was your favorite film of the festival as a whole? Are we all agreed I mean, that I, it's yourself and yours? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I can't say that uh, anything uh, topped getting a chance to see that again in in the theater. But uh, yeah, uh, I mean, I really, as much as I ha- sort of went back and forth on on Nocturama, uh, I do really think that movie is a movie that people I think are going to continue to watch for a long time, and a movie that I. Uh, though I have my reservations, will be interested to revisit and wrestle with again uh, down the line. So uh, that would probably be my other favorite thing that played at Sid. 
What about you, Ryan? What, what were your What was your favorite? Well, Taste of Cherry, uh, and then very close behind was Yourself and Yours, um, and then I did particularly like uh, Person to Person, uh, Marius, the 1931 film from the Marseille trilogy, mm. uh, The Unknown Girl, and uh, also By the Time It Gets Dark, that still has stuck fairly well with me. Yeah, that one. That one's in my top five as well, uh, and along with Columbus and and Love and Duty and uh, Dawson City Frozen Time, which mm-hmm. uh, I'm excited to see that after it apparently premiered at New York, the New York Film Festival last fall. But I don't mm-hmm. recall hearing anything about it until I saw it at SIF. And uh, well, it played in on, a sidebar, in like one of the documentary sections. Still. Yeah, no, sure. no, nobody was talking about it. Yeah. And then, as soon as I saw it at at SIF and started like raving about it on the internet, uh, it's getting like fantastic reviews everywhere. It's like Glenn Kenny listed it as one of the twenty five best films of the twenty first century, and it's obviously all because <laughs> the Seattle screen team bump, everyone. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm I'm really excited that that movie's like it looks like it's going to get like a wide release and a, and a lot of the critical attention. So uh, yeah, that makes that makes me very happy because I don't think that's mm-hmm. going to happen for by the time it gets dark or Mr. Long or mm-hmm. some of the other otter favorites. Maybe Bad Black will uh, will take America by storm, but I kind of doubt that's going to. It happen. seems like I don't know Alamo Draft House or something could release it. It seems like it'd be in their sort of. Yeah, I mean the the screener I saw was specifically tailored for the Alamo Draft House because it played at Fantastic Fest. So, oh yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. And they actually uh, before Nocturama, which I, I might add that like, Nocturama was of course the last film I saw. That was the only one that had uh, logistical problems because just like everything ran over. But mm. anyways, like before Nocturama, they played uh, the Bad Black trailer, and it just landed. Like like a bomb. It was just like absolutely befuddling to to everyone who I guess hadn't seen it. So are they bringing Bad Black back? Well, they they brought it like they I think they did an encore oh, yeah. oh, presentation yeah, on like Sunday. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. like the last show of the festival. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, well, coming coming soon to Seattle is uh, After the Storm. I think opens not this week but next week, and the Ornithologist is coming out this summer as well. Uh, and something else is coming up really quick too that I can't remember. Her- Hermie and Helena? Yeah, Hermie and Helena, but that didn't play at, at SIF. I, Daniel Blake. I, Daniel oh, Blake. oh, yeah. Um, that, that actually opens tomorrow in Tacoma, and then it comes to SIF a week later because, oh. you know, Tacoma's cutting edge. Tacoma premiere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, there's, we're not uh, rid of SIF yet. So, uh, do we? Well, have, if we'll be here before we. Know. Oh God, I can't wait. Uh, do we have any any final thoughts you all want to share? Um, I'm happy that I no longer feel the guilt when I'm sitting on my couch that I should be uh, out seeing a movie at SIF. So, uh, happy to be lazy and guilt free again. Now you just feel guilty you should be seeing a movie at the Northwest Film Forum or the Grand Illusion. Last year, I, I, that was my <laughs> evening last night, actually, even though I was tired. But <laughs> less frequent, anyways. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, happily to, I'm happy to be a, to have no guilt and to just watch, like, uh, uh, rock and roll movies. So, what started the... Watch what movies? 
I watched Rock and Roll High School last night. Oh yeah, which is like the cure for the Sith blues. It's is that the one with the Ramones. Yes, it's the best movie ever. Uh, and I started the Grateful Dead documentary, so I'm excited about that. Isn't that like four hours long? That's yeah. Like. Well, I started it. I, I watched an hour of it today, so I'm going to we're going to finish here and watch more. <laughs> I'm very excited. Uh, <laughs> All right, so that should uh, that should probably be it for this. Uh, the Francis Farmer Show, we are planning to be back later this summer. Uh, Melissa and I are attempting to read uh, James Fenimore Cooper's Last of the Mohicans. Uh, I am about, uh, I'm almost halfway through it. Melissa is uh, further behind, but she's going on vacation and says so she's going to have more time to read. So we're going to read that, and then we're going to talk about the Michael Mann movie at some point once we get that finished. And then we have other books that we're hoping to read and then watch the movies in conjunction with as the summer goes on, and we'll see where that goes. Um, and yeah, otherwise, uh, you can check out uh, all of our uh, reviews weekly at uh, CLScreenScene.com. We'll be back on the the regular movie beat. We got uh, we got lots of stuff coming up. You got you saw the beguiled, Ryan. That's right. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's coming up. We got yeah. the uh, we got the baby driver. We got uh, something else. I just sent you guys a press screening info for today. I think uh, the minions Okja. three or whatever. <laughs> Okja. Okja. Yeah. Okja. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, we'll have. Uh, more reviews of non-SIF movies coming soon. And also, uh, check out uh, Evan and I talking about uh, Hong Sang-soo movies that will likely never, ever come to Seattle. <laughs> because we live in the worst of all possible Well, hey, yourself and yours played here. I never would have thought that was going to happen. So, you know. Yeah. Maybe I mean, next year. If, He'll release three more things. We'll maybe get one of them. So. Yeah. I mean, well, <laughs> we'll... Next, next sip we'll get uh, on the beach at night alone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I still haven't seen it. So. Fell in the well. Finally comes. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, thank you guys. Uh, I think that's it. <laughs> <laughs>